0: We were uh, able to go to uh, Cincinnati and spend the week between Christmas and New Year's with uh, our two daughters, our son-in-law, and three grandchildren. Uh, Four of those people were taking antibiotics for strep throat. And uh, our daughter was uh, concerned that Amy and I would uh, get sick, and it was like, doesn't matter. This is worth it. We'll pay that price to be with you. The night before we left, my infected granddaughter was crawling all over my shoulders and hugging my neck and breathing in my face. And <laughs> a day or so after we got home, I, I didn't feel so good. And so on a Saturday, a week ago Saturday, I went to get a strep test, and it was negative But the nurse practitioner, who was delightful, made me grumpy. She kept calling me Pops. (laughs) So she's trying to swab my throat, and she said, You're not a very good patient, Pops. You ate too much over Christmas, Pops. You need to get more exercise, Pops. But I uh, felt that if I must expose myself to infections and, and ridicule to be with my family, it's worth it. So I was at church last Sunday, and then when I got home a little later that day, I got a call from our business administrator, uh, Beth Gonzalez, and uh, She had been out running, training for a half marathon and ended up like this last weekend. A broken knee, a broken wrist, a broken finger. And I can't wait to go tell that nurse practitioner that running is not good for your health. (laughs) Mixed in with my uh, minor irritation and Beth's incapacitation, are far more profound losses and pains. Even early in this new year, that has been true in our community and in our church, including the sudden death of Chuck Ferguson, whose memorial service we had in this room just a couple of days ago. And for that family, and for many others, 2019 starts off with grief and suffering. This morning, we need to shine the light of Christ on all of life's disappointment and sorrow and pain and misery. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark, and we come now to the end of chapter 8, and the title of this is Suffering. The passage begins with Jesus Himself saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things. Must suffer. It's not very encouraging. That's not something our society wants to hear, actually. David Brooks writes that uh, we live in a culture that's awash in talk about happiness. He said in one three-month period last year, more than 1,000 books were released on Amazon on the subject of happiness. But Jesus says he must suffer. From his words, I want to point out two musts of suffering. Here they are. One, Christ must suffer for you. And two, you must suffer for Christ. Two musts of suffering. The first, Christ must suffer for you. Uh, Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Imagine the shock of hearing Jesus say he would suffer and die. This was unexpected and abhorrent to his disciples. Uh, This was so different from the expectations anyone had for the Messiah, whom they believed he was. Uh, They were looking for a great military leader. They were looking for a magnificent king to bring them victory over the oppressor. Instead, he says, I'm going to suffer and die. This is the first time Jesus speaks openly and plainly about this. That the meaning of his life and his mission was not about victory and success now. It was about rejection and suffering and death. Jesus made it plain. He was open. He was clear. He was confident about what would happen. And notice he says must. That word means it's necessary. This is the right thing. This is the proper thing. I must do this. This must happen. And Jesus even tells who would cause him to suffer. The leaders of his own people. So there's irony here. It's not the worst people who killed Jesus, but the best. He wasn't torn to pieces by an angry mob. He wasn't knifed in the back by an assassin. He wasn't accidentally killed by friendly fire. The religious leaders, the legal experts, the political rulers had Jesus legally put to death by the Roman government. Jesus also says he will rise again three days later. He promises resurrection, that death will not be final. By the way, this is one of three times that Here in Mark's Gospel, Jesus delivers this same message. Here in chapter 8, then in chapter 9, then in chapter 10, he he repeats this alarming news. He's going to be murdered, and he names the murderers. This death is not a mistake. It must happen. It's intentional. Jesus isn't running from it. He's walking steadfastly toward it. Jesus was so clear, so plain, that Peter understood him, and he said, don't do it. I forbid it. It's wrong. Uh, he, he rebukes Jesus. The, the Greek word is epitomao. It's a stern, strong, harsh warning. You know, Don't be so negative, Jesus. You're going to bring us all down with your negative thoughts. Be more positive. But Jesus reacts just as strongly. He rebukes Peter, epitomao, the same word. And notice, he addressed Peter, but he looked at all of them. Why? Because all of them were thinking the same thing. Don't do it. God forbid. And why is this rebuke so so strong? Because this is a satanic idea. That's what Jesus says. It's it's satanic. This is a, a denial of the express design and plan of Almighty God. Because Jesus' suffering and death was the only way for God's plan to succeed. See, when you reason against God, when you talk against what God has planned, you're acting like a disciple of Satan. That's what Jesus accused Peter of. It, it, Satan had already offered Jesus an opportunity to escape all this pain, give him glory right now. But you see, without his suffering and death, there would be no salvation. Peter was looking at this only from a human viewpoint perspective. And Jesus calls us to see suffering as part of the plan of God And until we grasp that, we're not going to know God. When we do all we can to avoid suffering and to make things safer and easier only, we can be acting against the plan of God. We must bear that in mind. Years ago, uh, we had a, a Sunday evening commissioning service for a young couple that we were sending to another country as missionaries. And, and near the end of the service, there were several people who got up to, to, before the group, pray over and speak words over this couple. And person after person after person was saying, keep them safe. Protect them. Don't let anything bad happen to them. don't, don't Just watch over them, Lord. Protect them. That was all their prayers and their comments were about safety. I was last up. And I said, It's not that we don't want them to be safe, but we're not sending them to be safe. We're sending them to do God's will, whatever that is. They didn't let me do any more commissionings after that. Christ must suffer for you. And see, what that means is the bloody death of Jesus is the blazing center of God's glory and purpose. We've got to put that at the center of how we interpret all of life. And to deny or to ignore the death of Christ is the work of Satan. Any church, any preacher, any spiritual leader, any professed Christian who doesn't emphasize this fails to follow God, the suffering death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't make human sense, but it's God's plan. And since God's plan for Jesus uh, to save this world included suffering and death, we should not be surprised when we experience some pain and agony as well. Our misery can well be part of God's plan for us. He is using what, what might have been meant for evil for good. And that is the only way we can see life if our trust is in Christ. It's the light through which we view everything else. Christ must suffer for you. He must. And unless your trust is in his sacrifice for your sin, you are lost. You are in darkness. You are without hope. Second, you must suffer for Christ. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I want to point out to you, Jesus doesn't just say this to Peter. He doesn't just say this to his 12 disciples. He says this to the whole crowd. So these words aren't just for pastors and spiritual leaders. This is for all who follow Jesus. If you're going to be identified with Jesus... Be prepared for some suffering, some pain. Leith Anderson talks about how a a shepherd marks the sheep that he owns, and he says although some sheep are branded, that's really not popular because it damages the wool, and then the wool also can overgrow so the brand can't be seen. That today, uh, uh, ears of the sheep are pierced with identification tags, but that's a, a fairly modern phenomenon, invention. For thousands of years, shepherds marked the ears of their sheep by notching those ears with a sharp knife. And each shepherd had his own distinctive notch. And so that shepherd could see, even from a distance, which sheep was his. Anderson says, Christians are those who admit to being owned and marked by Jesus Christ, and sometimes they're marked painfully through suffering and difficulty. See, the very act of identifying with Jesus can be painful. And this pain comes from denying ourselves and following him. You say, well, what, is the, what does he mean, deny yourself? What is that? Denial is turning from self-focus to God-focus. It is shifting my emphasis from my will to God's will. It's, uh, denying means being ready to suffer with him and for him. It's, it's no longer being Overly preoccupied with me and my wants, but with God and what he wants. See, to focus only on my comfort and my success and my goals means I ultimately lose it all, Jesus says. If my existence becomes more important to me than Jesus, then I lose everything. Now, I'm not going to categorize what suffering for Christ is or isn't. I'm not going to do that. But I would tell you that whenever we put God's desires above our own desires, we can expect some pain. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And follow me, by the way, is, is a present imperative. That means it's a sustained pursuit of Jesus, constantly going after Jesus. And it involves taking up the cross. Now sometimes people refer to anything difficult in life as their cross. I've heard people say, arthritis is the cross I have to bear. I've heard people say, Being a Cubs fan is the cross I have to bear. My wife, somebody said, is the cross I have to bear. Cancer is the cross I have to bear. No, 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 no. That's not the point. The cross was the instrument of death reserved for criminals, rebels, and slaves. It's punishment for the lowest and the worst. Death in the most shameful, excruciating way possible. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, You must be willing to give up everything, your desires, your agenda, your respectability, your safety, even life itself, and reorient from doing what you want to what God wants. Be prepared to die. That's what Jesus is is saying. And he continues, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And let me point out to you that word soul, the Greek word is suke, It's the same word Jesus has been using that's been translated life. Suke, your soul, your life, it's your whole life. It's the totality of who you are. It's, it's the essence, the essential you that's worth more than anything else in this world. Years ago, a university student named Adam Bertel, uh put his soul up for sale on eBay. A- and the, the bidding started at five cents. His ex-girlfriend bids $6.66, which tells you what she thinks of him. But there was a winning bid. It was $400 from some woman in Iowa. eBay eventually, from the outcry, suspended the transaction. Now you're not allowed to sell your soul on eBay anymore. And, And as ridiculous as that is, most people, I think, still would be afraid to auction their soul. And yet millions upon millions of people do that very thing in a less obvious way. They trade their soul for a beautiful home, or a sexual fantasy, or a stable family, or an education, or a secure job, or a successful business, or an addiction, or a comfortable retirement. And some of those can be good things, but they can never be ultimate things. None of them are worth your soul, your real life, but Jesus is, and so it's right to risk everything on him. You have to risk always seeking your own comfort. You have to risk always seeking your own agenda. You you must abandon always seeking your own satisfaction, always seeking your own prosperity for Jesus. There's suffering involved in that. That's the life to which Jesus calls us. And he continues, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now now let me tell you, what's being ashamed of Jesus mean? And you might get a little afraid. You think, well, does that mean it, it, you know, when I keep quiet, when I should have spoken up, am I being ashamed of Jesus? Well, uh, does, that, does that mean that if I haven't shared my faith when I had the chance, is that being ashamed of Jesus? Well, those are momentary lapses of courage. And I will confess to you, I've had many, 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 many of those in my life. But what Jesus is talking about here is the settled state of your heart. The settled state of your heart toward Jesus. If you are not proud of him, if you don't treasure him and what he did for you on the cross, if he is not prized above everything else, then you are in fact ashamed of him. Anyone who thinks the cross, the way of salvation, the person of Jesus is embarrassing. Jesus says, you'll be lost. Uh, when, I, when I think about that, I think about this girl I used to like when I was in uh, youth group. Her name was Linda. Now, we, we started liking each other, it seemed that both of us liked each other, and we would sit together in youth group, and then we sat together in church, and that's kind of a big thing, and then we went on the youth hayride together. So we were seen in church as a couple. She also went to my high school, and at school, I avoided Linda, um, not just once or twice, but every single school day. I vividly remember walking down the hall, seeing her ahead in a room that I was going to go into and turning right around and going and hiding in the bathroom for a while. Why did I do that? I guess I was ashamed for my school friends to see me with her. Or I didn't want to ruin my chances with other women. I don't know. But it was terrible. And that was the day I realized I wasn't in a real relationship. Now, if you don't mind being identified with Jesus around some people, but you do mind it around other people, you are ashamed of him. If you're willing to associate with Christ in church, but not in other parts of your life, you are ashamed of him. And if that is the settled state of your heart then ultimately he says he won't associate with you. If you value your status more than you value Jesus, then that's the way he's going to treat you on Judgment Day. If you like some of what Jesus said, but utterly reject other parts of it, that's dangerous ground. Jesus says a little later on that he came to this earth to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life Suffer and die. Give his life as a ransom for many. And if you see that ransom as an embarrassment, you aren't ransomed. Being ashamed of the ransom cuts you off from Jesus. Nothing else can save you. Clinging only to him involves some suffering. So let me just think with you for a moment. What is some of God's purpose in suffering? Let me point out a couple of things. One is growth. If Jesus has to suffer and, and I, I need to suffer because I'm identified with him, what's the purpose in it? One is growth. John Ortberg says, imagine you've been handed a script of your newborn child's entire life. And you're given five minutes and an eraser to get rid of anything you don't want in that script and you read that she's going to have a learning disability in in grade school, and where reading comes easy for most people, she's going to struggle, struggle, struggle. Uh, In high school, uh, she's going to make some great friends, and then one of those friends is going to die of cancer. After high school, she's going to get into her preferred college, but while there, she's going to lose her leg in a car accident, and following that, she's going to go through a a difficult depression. A few years later, she's going to get a job, a great job, and then lose that job in, in economic downturn. She'll get married, but then she'll go through the pain of, and grief of separation. And with this script of your child's life and five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? Well, I think most of us say, I, I want to get rid of all that bad stuff. But if you could erase every failure and disappointment and period of suffering, would that really be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow the best version of themselves? Is it possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crisis and trauma to reach the fullest potential of development and growth? Orberg says this, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. That's a big difference. The more you identify with Jesus, and follow after him, and experience what it means to take up your cross, the more you're going to become like Jesus. God uses suffering to produce Christ-likeness in us. And often the most painful things in our lives that shape us are the things that shape us to be more in the character of Jesus. And that's why, as Romans 5 says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that sufferings produce, and it lists all these things that are produced in suffering that makes us more into the character of Christ. A. G. Fernando is a Christian leader from Sri Lanka. And uh, he thinks that American Christians have a blind spot when it comes to suffering. He says, we always seem to be talking about how to escape suffering and how to avoid it, how to recover from it. he says, this attitude is a severe restriction to spiritual growth. God intends us to grow through suffering. And the other aspect of God, God's purpose in suffering is glory. Glory. Jesus says, don't let suffering make you ashamed of me now, or you're going to miss out on glory later. How you react to Jesus now will be how Jesus reacts to you before the Father's throne. Your willingness to identify with Jesus, to trust his word, brings the possibility into your life of suffering. So you may not get that promotion You might lose that relationship. You might fail to accumulate wealth. You might be shunned by your family. You might get an F for A work. You may not have time for all the things you'd like to do because you're so busy serving Jesus. You may be dismissed as naive by the educated or or as foolish by society. Your circle of friends may shut you out, but God will accept you when he returns in glory. Holding on to that promise of future glory is crucial when suffering comes into your life. See, Jesus was impaled on a cross, bearing the sin of the world, and he went through that for the joy that was set before him. He endured by keeping future glory in mind. And you know, Scripture ties together so often suffering and glory. Romans 8, 17 says, Suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. It ties together those things. Uh, Romans 8:18 8, says, the, "The sufferings that we have in this world aren't anything compared to the glory that will be revealed in us." That's God's purpose. And so Jesus ends this section with these words, chapter nine, verse one. "Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power." He says. He gives them a little vision of glory. Six days later, that's what happens. Six days later, some of those there did see the heavenly glory of Christ. That's our passage for next week. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next week we'll see that. But this glimpse of power, this glimpse of the glory of the kingdom was to encourage these disciples who were discouraged and confused, and and it must encourage us as well. And so I just want to tell you today from this passage, suffering is here. But God is near and glory is on the way. That's what we have to keep in mind. Well, before I was born, November 1950, during the Korean War, the North Korean army was being pushed back up north. And they had with them prisoners of war. They had American prisoners of war, European prisoners of war. And they were marching, it was a forced, terrible march. The prisoners were forced to march up to 20 miles a day and they trudged forward even though they were weak and they were starving and they were suffering. And they kept going because anyone who did not keep up would die. You see, when the prisoner stopped or when a prisoner fell, they were immediately shot. And prisoner after prisoner was executed. One of those prisoners on that march was Philip Crosby. He painfully struggled forward with the, with the rest. But, but as, a, as a believer in Jesus, whenever he passed by another who was struggling to keep up, he would whisper these words to them. God is near us in this dark hour. His love is real. His mercy is real. His forgiveness is real. His reward is waiting. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you're suffering for following Jesus I don't know if your pain is great or small. I don't know if your struggle is in the past or the present or coming in the future. But to every one of you who clings to Jesus, I want you to hear that same message. Keep on. Keep on. God is present in this dark hour. His love and mercy and forgiveness are real. His reward is waiting. You see, suffering is here, but God is near and glory is Is on the way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for that promise, that vision of glory. Lord, I can't begin to know the lives of the people here gathered in this place today, but you do. And Lord, whether there is minimal irritation or incredible suffering, Lord, may each of us look to Jesus and realize all that you have provided. Thank you, Lord we know that if we suffer with You, we will be glorified with You. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen.